Listeners, this episode contains mentions of sexual assault, slavery, and human trafficking. Please take care in deciding how to listen. In honor of Black History Month, today we've got a very special story for you. To kick it off, I'm here with my producer, India, who has a treat for me. Take it away, India. Okay, well, Takara, I sent you something. Um, It it has come from very far away, (laughs) uh, from the corner of your street. (laughs) Okay, let me, give me a second. Let me see what it is. It is, dun, 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 it is, pa- no, it's not pasta, it's mac and cheese. hmm You sent me mac and cheese. I did indeed send you mac and cheese. I hope it's good. So what does mac and cheese mean to you? I mean, it's that food you go to when you're hungover. It's that food you go to when you're like extremely lazy and you have nothing else to make in your house with ketchup. It has with to have ketchup, ketchup? on it. Does is that this like a gross? weird? Is this like a weird Canadian thing? You wait, guys? wait, wait, but like, wait, wait, back up. So you've never had ketchup on your mac and cheese? No, definitely not. I'm judging what? you a little bit right now, Takara. No, that's like peanut butter and jelly. They just go together. I think you need to try it. You. Um, okay, well, I have something here to eat with Ooh. you as well. Okay. Okay, I'm going to show it to you in the screen. I mean, it looks delicious. It looks fancy as heck. It's covered in bre- it's covered in sugar. It's creme brulee. It's it fancy is. It creme is. brulee. It is fancy looking creme brulee. Okay, so you're probably wondering why we're here, starting our day with a nutritional breakfast of mac and cheese and creme brulee. Okay, well, I'm not upset about it, but yeah, it's a bit strange, India. Okay, well, the thing is, yeah, it's it's a little bit weird, but. These dishes have something in common, and that is that both of them were brought to North America by the same person. In fact, that person also innovated dishes like French fries and whipped cream and French vanilla ice cream. So the person that is responsible for all these dishes is a black chef named James Hemmings. And he brought them all over from France in the late 1700s. So he's the ultimate foodie then. I mean, he's an inventor. He's a food scientist. He's an entrepreneur. He's the whole package. Yeah, and I'm very glad that you picked up on that because someone very famous, someone very notable, someone even a Canadian would know, Ooh, took okay. complete credit for James Hemming's innovations and all of his culinary prowess. And that man was Thomas Jefferson. You gotta be kidding. Yeah. So buckle up, because if you had any nice thoughts about Thomas Jefferson, (laughs) this story is going to squash them. Okay, well, don't worry about that, because I don't really have any. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is They Did That, a different kind of history show. I'm Takara Small. After the break, the story of James Hemmings, Thomas Jefferson, and the surprising history of mac and cheese. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So before we get into the history and the story of James Hemings, let's just level set with some info about Thomas Jefferson, shall we? Yes, good. Because as we all know, I'm Canadian. I know some of your history, but I'm sure there are some finer points I'm missing. Right. So Thomas Jefferson third American president. He created the Declaration of Independence, the most important document, which helped to unify the 13 colonies to come to agreement to fight the war against the British and win their independence, which, spoiler, they did. So, you know, obviously this Declaration of Independence argues for the freedoms and the rights of the Americans from their British colonizers. Which is a little bit ironic because he did not believe in the freedom of African slaves. In Jefferson's lifetime, he enslaved 600 people. That's a lot of people. It's a shocking number. And they all lived in the very famous Virginia estate of Monticello. And this is where James Hemings spends most of his life. He was enslaved. Right. So James Hemings was enslaved by Thomas Jefferson, and he was Thomas Jefferson's half-brother-in-law. Okay. Okay, I'm starting to see the bigger yeah. picture yeah, now. Yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's really weird. So James's mother is a woman named Elizabeth Hemings, and Elizabeth was owned by a white British man named John Wales, and he becomes the father and, of course, owner of Elizabeth's children. So John is married to a well-to-do English woman named Martha Epps, and the two of them have a child. Wow. So John has two sets of kids running around. He's got kids with his wife and then kids with those he's enslaved. Exactly. So John and Martha have a daughter who they name Martha. And little Martha Jr. is coming from the right background. You know, she's from this well-to-do family, and they want her to marry the right person to get into high society here in the colonies. So who do they match little Martha Jr. with? I'm going to guess and say it's Thomas Jefferson. You are right. (laughs) So flash forward a few years. John Wales dies, and his estate gets split up amongst his white children. So as part of Martha's and Thomas Jefferson's inheritance— they receive some of his enslaved people. One of them is James Hemings, and another is his sister Sally Hemings, who might ring a bell, but we will get to her later. So the Hemings children arrived to Monticello in 1774. And this is a really historic moment in history. It's really tense. I mean, the Boston Tea Party just happened, and this is where America is starting to realize that they want their independence from the British. This is right. Like, the war is brewing. It's on the cusp. Exactly. Now, James is eight years old when he goes to live at Jefferson's Virginia estate, Monticello. And the Hemings children are treated a little bit differently than the other enslaved people. For instance, they're not 
you know, working on the plantation, but they are, you know, inside the house working, preparing meals and other things like that. But I don't want to paint this picture that the Jeffersons and the Hemings are one big happy family. I mean, the Hemings are still being enslaved by their half-sister and half-brother-in-law. Right, right. It's not like a worker and boss relationship. Like, this is someone who's directly related to the family. I'm sure they even shared, you know, facial similarities. I can't understand. It's so beyond words. But this was common practice back then. Like, this family is not unusual. This happened across the U.S. Oh, In many countries where slavery was legal. It's definitely not an anomaly. So James grows up at Monticello, and this is really where his culinary story begins. And I really wanted to understand exactly what kind of food was being prepared and, and cooked and eaten. So I chatted with Chef Ashbel McElveen, who is the co-founder of the James Hemings Foundation. And he also produced a documentary called Ghosts in America's Kitchen about James Hemings. Well, the kitchen at Monticello was not some vast space. The room was probably no bigger than a 12 by 15 room, which dominated on one wall by a huge fireplace. And that was the main center of how meals were prepared in colonial times. So the food made at Monticello was sort of a mashup of indigenous cooking, um, using the local poultry and produce in Virginia, but with these really distinct African recipes. So, you know, they're they're eating things like kitchen pepper rabbit, hominy, okra. You know, these were the typical dishes for an enslaved person, but also for people who were living and working in the house. But Ashbell, he puts it best. All of that coming and crashing together, culturally crashing, but culinary crash too, made that melange, that fusion that became Virginia plantation cooking. So James spends his teenage years at Monticello, in and out of the kitchens. Meanwhile, the American Revolution is happening. It is a bloody war, and it is also really expensive. So to pay for it, America has been borrowing a lot of money from France. And that's actually how James Hemings goes from that fireplace kitchen in Virginia to the best kitchens in Paris. Because the U.S. owed France a lot of money. Exactly. Jefferson was a recent widower and notoriously charming, And he was sent to France to woo the French aristocrats to keep that money flowing. So James went too? Yeah. Wait, how old was he now? So at this point, it's 1782, and James Hemings is 19 years old. And without him, his brother-in-law, Thomas Jefferson, had zero hope of succeeding. Okay, so what's the plan? You know, he wants to impress the French with uh, a little culinary surprise. So he brings James Hemings to France with him for two reasons. First, because he wants to impress the French with some authentic Southern food. And secondly, because he trusts James Hemings. He knows that he has what it takes to become his premier French chef. 
and after he secures those francs, he wants to be able to bring James back to Monticello so he can throw some very outrageous and decadent dinner parties. I'm starting to get the sense that Thomas Jefferson liked to party. Oh, yeah. Thomas is very well known for throwing some of the best parties and having the best food, which, of course, he likes to take all the credit for. I mean, that checks out. So tell me, like, what happens next? So Jefferson and James make the epic trip across the Atlantic, and they are catapulted to a completely new world that neither of them have ever been to before. At this point in history, in the late 1700s, Paris is the global epicenter of... Oh, I'm thinking of everything. Culture, art, food. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. So Thomas gets to Paris and enrolls James at the Chateau Chantilly, which is the premier kitchen in all of France at this point. Ooh, sounds fancy. At the Chantilly, he's cooking for between 250 to 500 people three times a day. It was a pressure cooker. So the food at Chantilly is rivaling the food in the royal palace of Versailles. So you can imagine James is is getting quite good. And Chef Ashbell says that James is basically Jefferson's secret weapon. Jefferson started weaponizing James Hemingway's cooking in Paris because he invited his darlings of the Enlightenment to his salons. And it was so spectacularly good that all of the French people that attended Jefferson's salons were very happy with the food that James Hemings prepared because they were the most discerning palates in France at the time. And so James is, like, killing it. Yeah, I mean, he's the first American to ever be trained in the cooking fine arts in France. And he becomes the first American chef in France. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that means that he's actually supervising 10 French-speaking white cooks and servants. So it's all going great for Thomas Jefferson. I mean, everyone is impressed. And James is getting great training. The only problem is that Thomas has been lying to everyone. In order for Jefferson to bring James to Paris, he had to lie about James's status. Jefferson had to pretend that he was not the owner of James. No one knows that James is enslaved by Jefferson. Wait, what? Don't worry, I'll tell you more after the break. Before the break, you said that Thomas Jefferson had come to Paris to take care of business, and he's brought along his enslaved brother-in-law, James Hemings. Am I getting this right? Yeah. Props to you for following this very crazy story. (laughs) So France was on the precipice of abolishing slavery. The French didn't want to be associated with slavery at all. They saw it as being very dangerous to their reputation and to their culture. And so for Jefferson, advertising the fact that he's a slave owner while also lauding the values of freedom and justice, 
Yeah, the two don't go together. So Thomas is worried that the French will find out that James is enslaved? What? Yeah, so Jefferson is hiding this secret that he has enslaved people working for him in Paris. Not just in Paris, but that back home in Monticello, he is a slave owner. Like, Jefferson came to Paris with, you know, sort of as a celebrity because, you know, he was this great politician that created the Declaration of Independence. Like, remember, the Declaration of Independence, it inspired the French Revolution. That would happen, you know, a few years to come. I did not know this. So this is the time of the Enlightenment. You know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and all these people that were, you know, radical in their thinking that they were oppressed by the French bourgeois, and they all were looking up to Thomas Jefferson, who they viewed as this radical free thinker. Can we just take a second to recognize that he is inspiring the French people to fight off, as you say, their oppressors and he's a slave owner like can we just take a second to like recognize how like completely bonkers this is Mm -hmm. okay let's keep going so this was such a well-kept secret that the Chantilly where James spent years cooking and training had no clue that he was enslaved until the 1990s that is 200 years of a lie I can't believe it took them so long And the person to actually break that secret and reveal the truth was no one other than Chef Ashbell. He explained just what happened when he went to the Chantilly in Paris. I'm sitting with the archivists and and they said, well, who exactly was James Hemmings? Um, We lost some records and I told them, I said, well, he was enslaved with Thomas Jefferson. They said, enslaved? I said, yes. They went berserk. They were like, no, 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 not here, not here, not here. They had no idea he would, they had an enslaved person there. Wow. Like, that is ridiculous. The fact that the whole time they didn't even know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine. Okay, so let's just jump back in time, back to the mid-1780s. So after two years of being in France with Hemmings, where everything is going well— Jefferson decides he wants to send for his daughter, Maria. And Maria is going to bring another enslaved person with her, who is... Oh, Sally. Sally, right. So, Sally... Okay, I know this story. I Okay, Okay, continue. I know, but it's something that we definitely have to mention. Oh, we have to touch so, on. Okay. So, Sally Hemings comes to Paris as Maria's maid. Sally, at this point, is 14 years old, um, and she's being reunited with her brother, James, you know, who's now 21. And Thomas Jefferson, widowed now, is in Paris, and he begins sleeping with Sally Hemings, um, who he basically, you know, is raping uh, because she's 14 years old. She's also the property. Right. So because she's the property right? of Thomas Jefferson. Like, there's no consent. Zero consent. Okay. You know, now is keeping not just one secret that James and Sally are his property, but he's hiding another secret, that he's sleeping with his sister-in-law, Sally Hemings. Um, it's just it's it's just disgusting. But James and Sally are together now, and— Now that they're in France, there is something that they could do to get their freedom. Okay. Like what? 
So if you're an enslaved person living in Paris, you can sue for your freedom. Okay, plot, plot twist. twist. There were tons of lawyers that were in Paris that would do this pro bono work for the enslaved and help them sue for their freedom. And in the case of someone like Sally and James, acquire their French citizenship. Okay, so, so, and did Sally and James know this when they arrived in Paris? So we don't know if Sally and James know this information, but we do know for a fact Thomas Jefferson does. So this is all happening at the same time as Sally Hemings finding out the news that she's pregnant. She's pregnant with Thomas Jefferson's baby. Okay. So there's a lot happening in this moment. And if that weren't enough, back home in the new United States, President George Washington decides that he wants Jefferson to be his secretary of state, which of course means he's got to get the hell out of Paris, right? So the clock is definitely ticking. Okay, so do they sue for their freedom? We'll find out after the break. We're on a little bit of a cliffhanger. We know that Sally and James are living in Paris and enslaved people can sue for their freedom at this point, but we don't know if they know this. Right, so we're in this moment where Jefferson has got to get back to the US because he's going to be George Washington's Secretary of State and the clock is ticking because Sally Hemings is pregnant with his baby. This is very messy. Yeah, messy, messy indeed. Jefferson tells Sally and James that this trip back to Monticello is just going to be temporary, but that they are going to return to Paris. Okay, because that's my question. Like, does he have any intention of actually returning to Paris? Or is this one of those situations where if he lies, he knows he'll be able to move them away from this opportunity for permanent freedom? I think the latter is definitely what was going on. Is I think he had full intention that he was not going to return back to Paris. So something very interesting happens here. Sally makes a very bold and ballsy move. So she doesn't negotiate for her personal freedom, but she tells Jefferson that she'll come back to enslavement at Monticello in exchange for the freedom of her future children. Wow. That is bold. And Jefferson basically agrees. He says, okay, but on the condition that they're freed when they're 21 years old. So kind of a win, right? So the whole family and the Hemings return to Monticello. This is a big moment where Hemings is bringing over all of these new recipes and these new, you know, revelatory cooking skills and, and these new techniques. And maybe the most revolutionary of them all is the protege stove. Chef Ash Bell tells us what it is. And what the protege stove allows you to do is to cook with hot charcoal. And it didn't require a flu because there was no smoke. And you could actually then do fine sauces and fine sautés. Wait, so up until now, people are just having big-ass open flames in their kitchen? Yeah, I mean, before this point, people were just cooking out of their fireplace. I mean, stoves were just not a thing yet. So when Hemings brings these new cooking techniques, it's like, it's a big deal. 
He's bringing over, you know, French vanilla ice cream, whipped cream. He's bringing some of the finest foods from Paris. And Jefferson basically tells James, I want you to take everything you've learned and put it to the test. Go all out because I have an extremely important dinner to serve. And this dinner is for James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. Okay, so these names sound very familiar. These are important people you want to impress. This is a really big deal, having them over for dinner. So, and it's such a big deal that it is the scene in the very notorious musical Hamilton. If you remember the song that goes, the room where it happened. Do you remember that song? Okay, I've never watched it, no, but I may no. now. They're talking about the famous dinner that is coined the dinner table bargain or the assumption dinner. So this is this famous dinner from 1790 that basically shapes American history and saved the American Republic. So Jefferson invites Hamilton and Madison over and, you know, they're about to talk about some really important business because they need to decide how the debt from the American Revolutionary War would be repaid. Because, as you remember, the Americans racked up a very big tab with a bunch of the French bankers and aristocrats. And at this point, they're pressing Jefferson for their money back. They want their money back. Yeah, so Jefferson needs to come up with a solution. And it has to happen at this dinner. So, of course, it needs to go perfectly. And Jefferson knows he's got a secret weapon in the back, James. And he is going to cook a bomb-ass meal for him and his guests. And you can imagine, Jefferson wants James to put everything that he's learned in France to the test for this dinner. The most exquisite dishes are coming out, and they've never experienced anything like this except for Jefferson. So you can imagine the creme brulee and the mac and cheese that we had this morning were probably on their dining table. So after whining and dining, these very important people, these big shots, what was the compromise they came to? So the South would support and pay for American debt in exchange for the promise of relocating the nation's capital to D.C. So D.C. is going going to be the new capital. And that capital is in the South. This is Jefferson's sort of, he's laying it out on the table, take it or leave it, and... These they guys, take it. They, they take it. <laughs> so James is here witnessing American history, and he knows that he is a big part of that dinner being successful. So I think he feels inspired by this moment, and he has a plan. That plan is to sit down and have a talk with Thomas Jefferson that night. About his freedom? Yes, to talk about his freedom. You can imagine he's, like, ter- probably terrified James barges into Jefferson's room, and he asks him to emancipate him. Okay, well, we just learned that James's culinary skills is a secret weapon that he relied mm-hmm. on to negotiate mm-hmm. this deal. So <laughs> I don't really think he's going to let that walk out the front door. I don't think he's okay with giving James his freedom, knowing that there's no one else in America at this point who has those skills. You can make the creme brulee, the mac and cheese, all of these delicious meals. Am I right? Yeah, well, you're you're right to have some hesitation about Jefferson's morals because he definitely did not really have too many of them. But Jefferson actually agrees <gasps> okay. to emancipate James, but on his terms. 
Okay, okay, the fine print. What are his terms? Yes, the fine. You got to read the very, very, very small fine print in like size eight. <laughs> yeah. Size, size eight. <laughs> so the terms were that James would be emancipated as long as he trained his brother Peter to cook as well <laughs> as James Hemings. It was only until then that James would be emancipated. I mean, like, yeah, you can get your freedom, but you're going to have to ensure that your brother takes your place. I mean, this is Mm -hmm. ultimate Sophie's choice. I can get my freedom, but I know that my brother will be stuck in this same situation for life. And to make matters worse, Peter has zero talent in the kitchen. So James, yeah, he has his work cut out for him. (laughs) He actually trained him for three years. So James works his ass off for three years and basically makes the kitchen at Monticello a training ground for French-American cuisine. Ashbell puts it like this. And in that 12 by 15 room, I want everybody to really kind of understand that that became the first cooking school in America as a condition of his contract for his freedom with Jefferson. So on February 5th, 1796, Jefferson writes a deed freeing Hemings from slavery. He's handed 30 bucks, and, you know, he's on his merry way. And how old is he? Um, He's in his early 30s. Okay. And he goes to Philly, and he spends a little time there, but then he moves to Baltimore, where he's working and cooking in a tavern. And mind you, he's still wearing the nicest clothes. I mean, he's dressed to the nines in French clothing. But, you know, he's kind of working this crappy job. And that could have been where the story ended. But there is one more plot twist that ties James Hemings and Thomas Jefferson together. So Jefferson becomes president in 1801, and he sends a message to James Hemings through his messenger, saying, hey, you know, I'm, now I'm president, and I would like for you to be the head chef at the White House. Sounds quite enticing. Oh, my God. Thomas is, like, high-key obsessed with this man. You know, James is probably considering this offer, and I'm sure it would come with a good paycheck because he is a free man after all. But now, James is giving Jefferson an ultimatum. He says, you want me? You can ask me yourself. Okay, that's a baller move. I mean, he basically says this to his messenger, you know, if Jefferson wants me, he can send me a letter in his own handwriting asking me to come back. You know, it's not too much to ask for. No, I mean, he's not asking him to meet him in person. He's saying, if you really want me to work for you, ask me in an official letter. I mean, it takes so much courage to be able to say that to the most powerful man in the country, right? I mean, this isn't just some random guy down the street. This is the man who won the presidency. This is the man who influences everyday America and formerly enslaved him. So it takes a lot of courage, but I understand, like, it makes sense. He's a free man now. He should be treated as such. Mm -hmm. There's a level of respect that he deserves. Yeah, and that's definitely how Chef Ashbell sees it too. But James Hemings stood up the most powerful man in his universe. That is the beginning of dignity of a Black man in America. And it's 
as powerful a statement as my life matters. So Jefferson never wrote that letter, and James never cooked for him in the White House. He lived out the rest of his days in Baltimore as a free man, and he left us with the legacy of his brilliance in the kitchen. I mean, the fact that he had such an impact on the everyday American cuisine cannot be overlooked. This man is behind some of the dishes that make America what it is. James Hemings did that. Like, that's all him. We gotta give credit where it's due. Mac and cheese, that's James Hemings. But I don't think he would have been about that ketchup edition. My God, you had to add that in. It's normal. Okay, <laughs> okay Takara, all right. If you want to learn more about the incredible story of James Hemings, then watch Chef Asheville's documentary. It's called James Hemings, Ghost in America's Kitchen. You can stream it on Amazon Prime Video. Next time on, they did that. The way people played violin, he just revolutionized that in a way not even Beethoven or Mozart came even close to. They Did That is presented by me, Takara Small. This episode was written and produced by India Witkin. Our associate producer is Serena Chow. This episode was edited by Jasmine Romero. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Engineering and sound design by Rick Kwan. Our production coordinator is Lily Hambly. And our theme song and additional original music is by Cedric Wilson. <laughs>